Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel over-churched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Hi, my name is Jen, and I'll be reading scripture. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophecies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophecies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of a man, of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Creator God, you called us to love and serve you with mind and body and spirit through loving your creation, our siblings in Christ. Open our hearts to compassion that we may receive others with open arms that we may promote healing on behalf of the church and the whole world. It's in the name of our brother and sibling and friend, Jesus. Amen. So maybe you knew this. I didn't know this until this week. But uh, pink was not always a color assigned to girls. In fact, in the 1800s, all children, whether they were bald-headed or born with mops on their head, whether they were bald or uh, blonde or brunette, black, white, brown, all children in America wore white in these like long, flowy, frilly dresses. These uh, white sleep shirts were easy for hoisting up and changing of nasty diapers. White could be bleached when they were inevitably stained from explosive blowouts. Baby clothes were practical, they were non-gendered. 
So then when colored clothing was introduced in the early 1900s, pink was considered more suitable for boys. That's because blue was considered a dainty color. It wasn't until baby boomers were born somewhere around the 30s and 50s that companies realized they could profit off of the increased number of children being born into this world. So manufacturers infiltrated the consciousness of new parents declaring, no, 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 pink is for girls and blue is for boys. So defining two colors of human expression in its earliest form in order to make a profit. Then again, in the 1960s and 70s, with the growing sexual liberation, civil rights, and women's equality movements, consumers decided to demand non-gendered clothing. And so green and gray and other spectrums of yellow became norms for parents to express their child's joyful entry into the world. And do you know what happened? It flipped again. In the 1980s, scientific progress and the introduction of prenatal testing allowed parents to learn the presumed sex of their new baby. And so those manufacturers got it in their heads to capitalize on this new fad of learning your baby's intended sex. They pushed again for a color swap of pink and released a pink and blue and released a whole new set of products introducing the next generation. And so pink and blue is not the gender-defying colors that we believe, but they were markets and greed and increased revenue and the desire to sell more, buy more, drove us to these two-colored gender-binary norms of pink and blue. The story of gendered clothing and appropriate behavior around who is male and female and not is not new, and it's not just with onesies that we express our gender. The Apostle Paul, you might remember the Apostle Paul. He was this former violent persecutor of Jesus' followers, once blind and then he could see and shares the gospel in all these new places. He then becomes a community organizer and a church planter. So Paul writes a letter to all the former churches he assisted, but he's doing it like kind of mansplaining, correcting them in their practices, instructing them to get along in community and as they get their lives mixed up together. Paul regularly writes to churches with instructions. And maybe that's because every time he rolled into a dusty new town, he didn't have new friends, or maybe he was having a dry spell on Tinder. Either way, Paul, it looks like, was not getting laid, so he laid down the law for all of these worshiping communities instructing them in the proper life of community following God. And while in general, I believe Paul instructed most of the churches to push, press for, continue to be more progressive in their hospitality, their inclusion, their welcome of others, his words in this section of the letter have caused deep frustration and further oppression, particularly for female-identified people called by God to preach, teach, care, and love others. The church and families and friends have split over this short, short section of a letter written to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time in history. So Paul regularly, in all of his letters, encourages the changing and the flipping of power structures everywhere. 
He, those who, are un, who eat clean food and unclean food, come on in. Those who are circumcised and uncircumcised, we don't want to see it. Come on in. Those enslaved by humans and those who walk free and work as they wish, you are welcome here. Even men and women and all other genders, all are equal and so dearly loved in God's sight, Paul says. So why? Why does Paul create this structure, this hierarchy of household authority? about head coverings and hair shornings and signs as signs of leadership potential. Some scholars believe Paul was encouraging the early uh, Christians to adhere to specific Roman practices of gender norms in order to prevent them from standing out too much, looking too weird and too wild, in order to allow others not to be distracted by their message of inclusion and God-welcoming community. So Paul might have said, women, whether you're bald, pixie cut, braided, or have a crown of hair, wear a head covering so others aren't distracted by a woman speaking. Concentrate on your words. So too men, don't cut your hair too short, don't wear it too long, have the perfect fade so people only see you and can, and can only argue with your words and not how you look. Give into and play respectability politics. Be shrewd, like Paul says, in order to share the powerful, disrupting message of God is what it kind of sounds like he says. In fact, many times we get distracted by parts of scripture that are used to abuse others. Sometimes then we miss the point of what the letter, of what the gospel, of what these instructions are trying to teach us. And so this morning, we're gonna be taking apart and tearing apart Paul's words. While it's set up for debate, whether Paul says this is right and this is wrong, and how he polices people's clothing, this argument around head covering, hair chopping, deters us from the intentions of what the letter actually means. And I don't mean, I don't mean to belittle this passage or how it might have been used and, and to abuse you uh, in the compounding of other intersections of oppression like race and sexuality and heteronormativity and, and ability. This passage has been used to harm female identified and queer folks. Let's be real. This passage has been used and abused and bastardized to great harm to women, those with a desire and a lot of soul searching, those with a desire and who are truly gifted to tell people the truth about God. In all honesty, this passage was required by me in my undergraduate and seminary education to do a lot of soul searching back in the day when I realized I was unequivocally called by God to tell the truth about God's love and to do so unashamedly, but I didn't want to wear a hat. But we will not, and I will not be twisted and tortured by those who seek to oppress and silence women. Instead, we will look and dig into God's word like a, a panner for gold. We will sift through the crud and the crust of the earth and find the precious stones of God's news left for us. And so in this passage, Paul tells them the truth of what their culture and the Romans believe is actually right, good culture, that Christ is the head of the man, the man is the head of the wife, and Christ is the guide and the lead of the man. Christ, uh, God, the man is the reflection of Christ in the world. The woman is the reflection of the man, and the man is the reflection of Christ. All this circular argument of head of house and head coverings and reflections and mirrors, who it comes from and whom, where one's true identity lies, gets really confusing. And the metaphors get really mixed up. I should tell Paul to go back to early English studies. 
it's spiraling, he's kind of spiraling out of control in his argument, and it's not really easy to read. But what we can pull forth from the muck is the reinforcement that God is the lead, that God is the guiding force among all people, that it's not men that have power over women, like the culture tells us to enforce and reinforce. No, Paul says, Christians believe God is the head of the household. It is God who guides the decisions of a family, of a community seeking to follow God. A woman does not follow man. Women, like men, like any other person, follows God. Because, maybe you didn't catch it because it's so quickly read by, but verse eight reads, indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then, almost in the same breath, Paul picks up in verse 11, nevertheless, the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent, nor is man independent of woman. For just as woman came from the man, so too man came through the woman. And all things come from God. So God really gives zero head coverings about what body parts or lack of body parts are under one's robes. God gives zero heads of households about which came first, the male chicken or the female chicken who laid the egg. In fact, Paul is instructing the new church in, with some strong leaders, both male and female and probably some gender, uh, other gender-identified folks, to do something totally queer, something v-weird for the Roman culture in which they were surrounded in Corinth. Paul instructs them not to seek independence. It's not about who is the best preacher. It's not about who has the most followers. It's not about the number of likes you get or the number of downloads of your podcast because everybody has a podcast, girl. It's not about becoming a Jesus follower influencer. No, God doesn't care about how many conferences you speak at, how many chapters you contribute to publications, or how many people recognize you when you're walking down North Clark Street in all your glory. Christian community is not about fame or independence. Christian community following God is about interdependence. We all rely on each other to see God's beauty in creation in new and complicated ways. It's not about a pastor who speaks a good word on Sunday. It's about when we show up for the family who just experienced death of a parent. It's not about who is the loudest and brightest singer. It's about texting each other when one of us is depressed or experiencing suicidal thoughts. We care for each other and we remind each other that God loves us, not because one of us is good and the other needs fixing, we care for each other and remind each other of God's love because in the long history of doing life together, we know there will come a day when death will also knock on our door, when circumstances and chemical imbalances will affect our family and we need a community to come around us. So we care for each other, not because one of us is the more sacrificial lamb giving ourselves up to the lion of life. No, we care for each other because we get our lives mixed up together because two strangers Seemingly totally different people caring and loving each other is the strange image of God, the kingdom on earth. When different genders, male and female, transgender, gender queer, gender still figuring out gender, mind your own darn business. When people understand it is not about a competition for God's love, but about the completion of sharing God's love with as many hurting people as possible, God's kingdom becomes real. That's why 
Throughout this sermon series, we've been also reflecting on and uplifting people of black American history who have done good things in our lives and taught us more about the queering and understanding of God's expression in the world. So this Sunday, we celebrate Willie Ninja, which is not his real name, but it is the name he went by most of his life. Willie Ninja was a choreographer and dancer in the Afro-Latino ball culture of the 1980s and 90s. If you've ever seen Paris is Burning, a famous documentary from that same era, Willie Ninja is the choreographer strutting his stuff and showing you what voguing looks like. Does anybody know how to vogue? I sure as heck don't, but if you you do, okay. (laughs) Yes, voguing is this, but it's also a lifestyle. It's a It's a fascination with embodiment of who you are and strutting everything for every God-given person to see. And so it was popularized, we think, somewhere in the 1930s, but Willie Ninja was one of the first to expose it to the world in Paris' burning. He popularized and led voguing uh, among young queer kids, young queer kids of color in Harlem, and then later to the world, expressing their bodies as femme, Butch, elegance, realness. He then, Willie Ninja, influenced and uh, helped Madonna build up her image around Strike a Pose and her music video around voguing culture, which then led to influence so many other people, including the queen of all queens, Beyonce, in her single ladies video. So many have been influenced by Willie Ninja and his inspiration of dance and sharing your body with the world as a proud way of who you are. And so it is important that we celebrate black culture and what black culture has taught us about God's queering of understanding the world. It's not about male or female, but about expressing who God has created your body to be. When we celebrate black history and black culture, it's not about uplift, it's not about being anti-white, but it's about knowing that the culture we live in and surround ourselves in already uplifts whiteness and white people. And so by uplifting and sharing in black culture and other cultures and history, we then are creating a balancing of the scales, remembering where God's justice lies. That's why when we celebrate that women can preach and teach no matter what is on their hair or how glorious their hair looks that day, I know. That we are not anti-men, but we are saying that women also have been called to lead and support our communities as well. That's why when we march for gay pride and say that God is proud of the gender queer and the transgender and the gender who you are, because God created you who you are, we are not anti-heteronormative people, but we are saying, no, the world is already heteronormative everywhere else, that we need to uplift and celebrate God's beauty here among gay and bisexual and lesbian and transgender, asexual, intersexual, and all the other uh, little letters you can find at the end of that acronym. We celebrate because God celebrates and we are balancing the scales because we know God says your sons and daughters and gender non-conforming siblings will prophesy. They will dream great dreams and prophesy of God's goodness. So it's not about, or it has little to do with head coverings and heads of household. It's not about the different expressions of male and female or about the necessity. It's about, actually, the necessity of difference, the welcoming in of difference in order to more fully understand God's expanding, ever-growing work. Jesus did just this. You know, we talk about Jesus surrounding himself with a bunch of dudes, but he wasn't just this bro-culture kind of guy. 
No, there were women, lots of ladies, who were questioning where they could, uh, how they could act, if they could learn. Rather than all the women being Martha's in the kitchen, there were also Marys sitting at the feet of Jesus, believing their curiosity was worthy of nourishment. There were men who did terrible things like overtax poor people, and there were women who did seemingly terrible things like go out in public while Aunt Flo was in town. If you don't know who Aunt Flo is, ask me later. But all, all were received by Jesus and healed and demanded fellowship to God with human skin on. Therefore, our community doesn't represent God's kingdom unless we are open to people who express their gender with bow ties, with bows in their hair, with bows on their underwear, with bows wherever the heaven they want to wear them. Our community better reflects God's kingdom when we do not seek to know more about what's underneath somebody's clothes but, or what are the letters on their birth certificate, but when we seek to know the story of how God wrecked and restored their life. We reflect the community of God best when we respect each other's chosen name, how race and economic status affected life growing up and became their chosen family. Because when we become each other's chosen family, we celebrate one's life on earth as God sees it in heaven. Will you pray with me? God, you are our refuge and our hope. When race and status and gender try to divide us, when despondency and despair haunt and afflict us, when community lies shattered, comfort us, God. Convict us of the things we have done and left undone. And then God, restore us to the community which you have called us through Jesus Christ, in whom we belong, in whom we are so dearly loved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.